0: Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Economist Sergei Guriev and political scientist Daniel Treisman open their new book with a question. Why, after all the brutal manias of the 20th century, from fascism to communism, have been discredited, do we still see new autocracies rising from the ashes? In their new book, Spin Dictators, the Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century, they attempt to explain the nature of the current dictatorships. It's published by Princeton University Press and brings Daniel Treisman, a professor of political science at the University of California, to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao ruled through violence, fear, and ideology. But in this book, you look at how... Many modern autocracies have evolved from World War II to the present, leading up to a new breed of dictators who fake democracy. Um, li- like spin doctors in democracies, they spin the news to to win support.
1: That's right. Uh, we looked at uh, the range of dictatorships, authoritarian governments around the world in the twenty first century, and we were struck. Uh, by how different some of them operated, how differently some of them operated uh, from the classic dictators of the 20th century. So most of us, when we think about dictatorship, the images that come to mind are the dictators that you mentioned, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, uh, people who killed millions and uh, locked up uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of of, uh, political opponents in concentration camps, and who ruled... uh, with very strong uh, ideology and official ideology imposed on uh, all all people in their in their country uh, who had comprehensive censorship heavy handed propaganda uh, and they tended to close off their countries from the world uh, hmm. but so that model uh, is very distinctive and I think that's what we tend to think about but uh, then you look at A lot of the authoritarian leaders of the early 21st century, and you see people like uh, Hugo Chavez or uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary or uh, the early Putin Uh, and uh, they look very different. As as you said, they pretend to be democratic. Uh, They fake democracy. They hold elections, but they just uh, make very sure that they win uh, all the elections. Uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary was just re-elected again. It looks... By a landslide. Uh, on, on the surface. Well, by a landslide, exactly. And that's, that's also characteristic. Uh, they don't tend to win by the 99% that the totalitarian dictators of the 20th century used to, uh, used to uh, win by, but they win by uh, large majorities. And the way they do that is primarily uh, manipulating information, controlling the media, often in quite subtle ways, so they co-opt private media stations. They also leave a a small uh, independent uh, press, so long as it has uh, an audience that isn't threatening, a a small audience, a fringe audience. Um, And and this enables them to uh, project an image of democratic leadership and and, uh, openness. Um, They're also... Uh, in contrast to many of the old dictators very open to the world they trade they uh, take part in international institutions and they try to uh, use the same techniques of uh, manipulating the, the news spinning information and uh, co-opting people uh, corrupting institutions and uh, and uh, uh, using influence in the west to try and get their Goals uh, to, to achieve their goals on the international stage, uh, much as they do at home. So we we see this as really a, a striking development uh, in the last few decades. Uh, it might have seemed as though democracy was winning across the board for a long time, um, but uh, and and we think ultimately the pressures of modernization and globalization do lead towards. Uh, more democracies around the world. But there is a way that uh, leaders who, who uh, prefer dictatorship can uh, maintain a, an authoritarian regime, even in a more modern, uh, integrated uh, global system. And uh, that model is, as as we call it, the spin dictatorship.
0: Well, haven't some hired lobbyists to improve their images in the United States and elsewhere? Is it important for them to play down the dictatorial aspects of their regimes because they rely on international engagement for financial and reputational benefits?
1: Absolutely. So at home, they pretend to be Democrats. Uh, they, they, They operate by projecting an image in the state media and the the covertly controlled media of uh, competent uh, democratic leadership. Uh, But they also need to be perceived as uh, Democrats worldwide, or at least that's their aim, uh, because uh, they want to be accepted in international institutions. Uh, They uh, seek uh, capital uh, inflows and and trade. And uh, so the... International image uh, is uh, combined with the domestic image. Uh, They have to be consistent. And uh, as you say, many of them employ lobbyists in uh, Washington and Brussels uh, to to polish the image of their regimes uh, in the West.
0: You mentioned uh, that uh, in the case of Vladimir Putin, that was until recently. In 2018, you edited a book titled The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia about the complex roles of Russia's presidency, security services, parliament, media, and other actors. But so much has changed recently. Is, Is this whole process a bit fluid? For example... Um, don't some of, of Putin's recent actions like trying to poison Alexei Navalny, his major opponent, then having him imprisoned, um, uh, also um, allowing for a relatively free press, as you said. But now anyone who used the word war or invasion in regard to the Ukrainian situation can be arrested.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Putin is uh, really an amazing example of somebody who has crossed uh, the whole uh Spectrum. So he started out as really one of the innovators, the pioneers of spin dictatorship. Uh, he had in his early days really quite sophisticated uh, soft propaganda. Uh, he presented himself as uh, as a democrat, and it was quite credible uh, early on. Um, he, even el- he even was. even was.
0: Uh, he even lost an election, became prime minister. Instead well, of- he
1: didn't. Th- that's right. He didn't lose an election. He, he had to step down because of term limits. And he made a big deal of respecting the Constitution, respecting the uh, the two uh, consecutive terms uh, limit in the Constitution on, on serving as president. So he essentially held an election in which his close associate, Dmitry Medvedev. But he's was changed elected. those rules now. Exactly. He, he, in 2020, he changed those rules. So we see a very dramatic, well, first of all, we see a gradual change from 2012 when he came back to the presidency after Medvedev's uh, interim term, um, but then a much faster change from about 2018. And he's really become, so, so he started as a spin dictator, uh, the old type of dictator who rules by terror, Uh, we call fear dictators and he's really uh shifted from spin to fear he's now a a classic fear dictator uh using terror completely eliminating independent media uh and uh there's no longer much of a pretense of being democratic although he will still Uh, claim that he's supported by the vast majority of Russians. Uh, The the truth is, at this point, we don't know, because doing opinion polls uh, in an environment with this level of uh, overt repression uh, is just very unreliable.
0: So who are the current fear dictators? Uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, Syria's Bashar al-Assad, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman? Right.
1: And you can add to that uh, the Chinese regime. So... Mm -hmm. uh, China is a very interesting combination of the basic strategy of spreading fear uh, using intimidation uh, against uh, ethnic minorities in Xinjiang and in Tibet and, and the against uh, exactly and and against uh, political opponents in Hong Kong people who would like a more democratic uh, system uh, so they've used heavy-handed uh, repression uh, in those places uh, they also, uh, force dissidents to make televised confessions, uh, which you know, is a chilling kind of signal of, uh, of, of violence to the population, uh, t- letting everybody know that they need to be uh, afraid and they need to be obedient. So there's this fear element, but they've combined that with all these high-tech new tools. Uh, which were not available in the 20th century to people like Stalin or Hitler. So uh, surveillance tools, uh, facial recognition technology, GPS tracking. So they're able to uh, intimidate uh, in a much more kind of comprehensive and targeted way, uh, while still basically uh, holding to this uh, this much more old-fashioned, uh, strategy of uh, intimidation.
0: And yet China enjoys good trade relations throughout the world.
1: Well, yes, even fear dictators these days uh, have opened their borders and uh, not in all cases, North Korea and Eritrea are uh, cases where uh, they still try to protect the population from contamination from outside by enforcing Uh, very strict controls of the borders, but China and and most other successful fear dictators, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, they uh, engage in international trade, uh, even uh, international investment, uh, capital flows and so on, uh, because that, if handled right, can be a source of power for dictators.
0: Donald Trump once said at a rally that he and North Korea's Kim Jong-un fell in love after they'd exchanged (laughs) letters.
1: Well, it's it's interesting to draw parallels. And people often ask, are are populist politicians in democracies uh, also kind of like these spin dictators that we see in more authoritarian settings? And uh, in some ways, they're very similar. So uh, politicians like Trump uh, attack the independent media. Uh, They call it fake news. Uh, They provide provide sophisticated propaganda to their base via Twitter and so on. And they try to use their popularity to weaken checks on their power, which is exactly what spin dictators do. We've seen other cases in some other uh, democracies like Italy. So Silvio Berlusconi uh, there ended up controlling six out of seven uh, national TV channels for most of his tenure. Uh, Three were state-owned, three were from his own media empire. Uh, And we've seen others like uh, Nestor and uh, Cristina Kirchner in Argentina. Uh, For instance, they increased state advertising very dramatically from from, uh, uh, a few tens of millions, from $16 million in 2000 to almost a billion dollars in 2013. And they used this state advertising Uh, to build up a base of support in the media. So they would uh, target the state advertising uh, to uh, outlets that were loyal uh, to them. So we see these techniques used uh, in democracies too. Um, The main difference, we would argue, is not in the leader himself or herself, but in the environment. So in uh, consolidated democracies, uh, economically developed democracies that have been democratic for a long time, there tends to be a larger, more educated, sophisticated part of the population uh, with organizational skills, communication skills and so on that can fight back, that can resist. Uh, so I'm thinking of journalists, civil servants, lawyers, judges, local government officials, NGOs and citizens themselves who come out and, uh, and protest. Uh, so uh, it's much harder in a consolidated democracy to use these techniques, although to a lesser degree, uh, we, we see them in, uh, in, in action under somebody like, like Trump. Uh, so uh, yes, these, so there's a continuum of different types of regimes, and clearly somebody like Trump would like to uh, turn the US system into something like a spin dictatorship he didn't succeed. It's it's uh, pretty frightening how far he got, and uh, of course how far he might get in the future if he's reelected. But so far, the resistance to his attempts to get around democratic constraints uh, has has been impressive, and and that's you know a sign of uh, I would say not just the institutions uh, being strong in the U.S. Uh, but the uh, sophisticated, educated active, skilled, resourceful part of the population being strong, because the institutions only work if people make them work.
0: My guest on today is Leonard Lopate-at-Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. is Daniel Treisman, Co-author with Sergey Guriev of "Spin Dictators: The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century," published by Princeton University Press, has Viktor Orbán's spin dictator approach made him attractive to some American conservatives, like like Tucker Carlson, for example? Uh,
1: well, again, there we see the kind of the parallel and the links uh, between uh, less than fully democratic politicians in the West and. Uh, people that we would classify as spin dictators like Viktor Orban. Uh, there's in fact, uh, a lot of, uh, I mean, if you go deeper, you find a lot of uh, interactions between, for instance, Republican uh, political strategists and some of these, uh, these dictators or, or pseudo Democrats uh, in especially in Eastern Europe and uh, other uh, places which have become democratic relatively recently or or tottering between democracy and autocracy. So uh, Victor Orban actually uh, used the services of some quite well-known uh, Republican uh, consultants. Uh, and there's been a lot of learning back and forth, I would say, uh, definitely by uh, regimes such as Victor Orban's learning from uh, the less scrupulous uh, parties in the West. And also probably some learning going the other way. People like, well, we saw how Trump admired strongman politicians uh, in other countries. Uh, there's, You see the same technique sometimes turning up in, uh, in both types of places.
0: Should we assume that Orbán's uh, margin of victory is legitimate? Uh, because uh, you point out that even uh, though uh, any, any number of these people – Win their elections by huge amounts. They they tend to inflate inflate the numbers nonetheless.
1: Right. Well, one thing we need to bear in mind, uh, and I haven't seen the result for the number of seats that Orbán's uh, party or bloc will get in the in the parliament. But he won, I believe, fifty three percent of the vote. I'm guessing that he will have a two thirds majority of seats because they've set up the system in such a way that. Uh, a majority of the votes translates into a supermajority of the seats. Uh, now, in addition to that, there's been a lot of gerrymandering. Uh, again, a technique that occurs both in democracies and in, in this type of, of spin dictatorship. Um, so that uh, the uh, results are greater than one might expect just based on the popular vote. And then you have to bear in mind that the media is, is uh, dominated by pro-Orban uh, state and private uh, stations, uh, companies. So uh, the way that people like Viktor Orban managed to get majorities uh, in elections is by carefully managing the news so that uh, news that looks unfavorable to them is either uh, downplayed or not reported at all or else, Explained in some way as really being uh, the fault of somebody else. Uh, so they divert attention. Uh, they distract from bad news. And uh, one thing that spin dictators do a lot. Uh, this is uh, more the Latin uh, American examples like Hugo Chavez and Rafael Correa in uh, Ecuador. They try to flood the public space uh, with their own uh news production. So uh, uh, Chavez, for instance, would have these long, uh, sometimes eight-hour-long uh, televised uh, shows uh, in which he would uh, basically keep the media uh, watching the whole time rather than reporting uh, on what was really happening, uh, because during these shows, when you would sort of ramble around, meet with people... Uh, discuss whatever came to mind during those shows, he would sometimes actually uh, make some important announcement. He would fire ministers or uh, announce a new policy. Uh, and so flooding the space, in a sense, keeps out, or uh, reduces the room that's left mm. uh, for the kind of news that he wants people not to know about or not to pay attention to. And we saw something similar with uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador. So they have all these techniques Uh, that together with dominance over the media outlets themselves allows them to present an image uh, that then gets them elected. And once they get these super majorities, uh, they use that uh, in their turn to uh, change the Constitution, to change the rules in ways that lock in their advantages.
0: Do we see similar strategies from some of the others you've dubbed spin dictators, like Singapore's Li Lung and Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan? Erdogan. Uh, what about Mahathir Mohamed in Malaysia or Nur Sultan Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan? And I'm assuming there may be some others because it seems to be a growing trend.
1: Yes, that's right. Well, yes, so they, they all – there's a lot of things that they have in common, and uh, they also uh, introduce their own twists. Um, but th- you mentioned Singapore, and and that's a really fascinating case for us uh, because we we see uh, Lee Kuan Yew as really having inspired a lot of these other leaders. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, as 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 I'm sure you know, was a real pioneer of a kind of Uh, regime in which uh, authority was very clearly at the top, although it was, uh, on the face of it, democratic. Uh, He put a strong emphasis on order, on top-down authority, uh, but he was very sophisticated about it. He created a system in which elections were held, but his party always won with huge majorities in the parliament. And... uh, He invented some of the techniques that contemporary spin dictators use to disempower potential opponents. Uh, And what's really striking also is uh, how uh, how other authoritarian leaders or how authoritarian leaders in other parts of the world have looked up to Lee Kuan Yew and very explicitly acknowledged uh, the inspiration that they drew from him. So. We see, for instance, that uh, both Putin and Nazarbayev, the former president of Kazakhstan, uh, gave Lee Kuan Yew medals, gave him awards, uh, honorific awards. There's one uh, fascinating example of uh, how people look to Singapore and then imitate it, uh, which is to do with, uh, well, in uh, the early 2000s, and this is when Lee Kuan Yew was already uh, gradually moving to the background. But in the early 2000s, Singapore created what was called a speaker's corner or a Hyde Park corner uh, in one of the central parks where people were allowed to go and give speeches about whatever they liked without any fear of being punished for uh, saying uh, things that were not allowed. uh, Well, instead
0: of outright censorship, some of these um – these uh, new spin dictators uh, use lawsuits and arbitrary regulations as a means of control.
1: They do. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, just to finish about the speakers' corners, Russia created two speakers' corners in parks in Moscow sh- shortly after uh, Singapore uh, innovated in that way. So we see that the pattern going. But you're absolutely right. So in Singapore, for instance, uh, many people... Uh, on the opposition side. Well, I shouldn't say that because there aren't many people uh, who are brave enough to stand on the opposition side, but uh, various uh, opposition politicians have been sued uh, for defamation um, and uh, have ended up uh, losing the cases and and uh, being uh, ordered to pay very large fines. And uh, one, well-known well well, in fact this this has happened to several but one very well-known opposition leader uh, was uh, made bankrupt through this process of being sued for defamation Um, and once he was bankrupt he couldn't serve in parliament Uh, he even needed permission to go abroad Um, so yes I mean one of the techniques that many uh, leaders use is uh, to actually use the letter of the legal system, the letter of the law against their opponents. So, so that when criticized, they can say they're just they're just, uh, you know, they're fighting defamation or they're protecting the public with necessary regulations or something like that. Uh, so it's consistent with this idea that they're really Democrats.
0: So should we make a distinction between governments that are authoritarian and the ones that are total dictatorships?
1: I think absolutely. We we need to understand uh, spin dictatorships uh, because sometimes people tend to, uh, sometimes people don't understand how they operate and uh, end up classifying them as democracies. So for instance, Hungary uh, has been treated for a very long time as a democracy, even though in recent years, it's pretty clearly been something else. Um, we, we have trouble figuring out where to put uh, these regimes like that of Hugo Chavez, uh, Putin early on, um, Erdogan early on, we, we uh, kind of, we see that they hold elections. We see that the leader came to power through an election and therefore we think it must be a democracy. But um, look a little closer and you see that it's, that these are often uh, regimes that really do not give voters Uh, The ability to make an informed choice about their leaders and that uh, limit free expression and and uh, uh, freedom of association just in more subtle ways uh, than the old type of dictators. So I think we need to first recognize that there is this new form which kind of fits better with modern societies and a globalized world, but nevertheless remains uh, essentially a dictatorship.
0: Well, Uh was the end of the Cold War factor in the creation of this new form, wasn't it thought that developing the economies of dictatorships would create demand within them for political reform and that modernization would lead to them becoming more democratic and cooperative? Was that just a naive hope?
1: I don't think it was just a naive hope. It was an incomplete hope Uh, because I think there we do see evidence of these pressures. So as countries modernize as, as uh, rates of higher education increase, as they move from industrial to knowledge economies, as, uh, and also as we see globalization uh, occurring. So media and human rights movements becoming increasingly global, uh, greater trade and financial integration and so on. We see those phenomena leading to pressures uh, for more open government And uh, some countries do transition all the way into democracy. I I think what was, I I wouldn't say necessarily naive but incomplete in our understanding of that process uh, was that we didn't realize that there was this other stage. There was this other response that dictators could turn to uh, to delay the transition to democracy. Uh, They could basically fake democracy in order to avoid introducing the real thing. And uh, they, it, during this period, developed all these techniques that we've been talking about uh, to make that work. Uh, now, it's, it's, it doesn't work endlessly, and that's what we see, for instance, in, in Russia. Uh, as society continues to get even more modern, uh, if it does, uh, then the pressures for genuine democracy continue to be felt. And we saw that in Russia with the rise of Navalny, for instance. Uh, there were protests against Putin in, 20, in 2011, 2012. Uh, he managed to deal with those, uh, but then there were more major nationwide protests in 2017 and then 2019. And uh, you know, this was in part related to the fact that internet penetration had soared in Russia in precisely those years. So people were connected to the internet. People were also using YouTube to an incredible degree. I think YouTube became, uh, Russia became YouTube's fifth biggest market. And so people were getting this all this information, all these videos, uh, and Navalny surfed that wave. Alexei Navalny, of course, is the uh, Russian opposition leader who's, who, who Putin, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Putin's uh, agents tried to poison and who then went back to Russia and now has been jailed for a very long time. Navalny uh, built up his YouTube channel from 1 million subscribers to, by the end, uh, or by today, I think it's about 6.4 million uh, subscribers. And he published these videos about uh, Kremlin corruption that got more than, well, the, the most dramatic got, 122 million views so far. So with all this continuing modernization, continuing uh, evolution of society, uh, the demand for democracy continued. And that's, I think, a big part of why we see Putin swinging back to a more explicitly repressive, overtly repressive strategy. Uh, in the last few years. And we see that also in Turkey with Erdogan, who started you know, seeming relatively democratic, uh, mm-hmm. but in fact, you know, using the techniques of, of spin uh, to mm-hmm. present that image. And then after 2016, when there, there was a, yeah. a failed coup, he became much more repressive, much more openly repressive. So this uh, it's a difficult line to walk um, and uh, the pressures eventually uh, often lead to a crisis in which the country goes all the way to democracy, or else the dictator uh, backslides, reverts, and uses fear techniques as a last resort. Really, is the is the only way to, to save to save their uh, regime, with the cost that it destroys the economy. So we see. I mean, the economy under Putin in recent years has has been doing pretty badly. The economy in Turkey, since Erdogan became more repressive, uh, has uh, has deteriorated. So growth rates have gone down from about five percent a year to two percent a year. Another case, uh, Venezuela. So under Chavez, uh, it was much more this kind of populist spin approach under Nicolas Maduro, uh, of course, it's much more repressive and the economy's uh, in in tatters. Uh, So uh, I think the pressures towards democracy are real, but uh, we shouldn't have assumed that dictators will simply accept that and give up. Uh, They uh, have proved to be very innovative and they've created this new alternative way of controlling society uh, that worked better in a more modern setting.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Professor Daniel Treisman. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. Just go online to give to wbaiorg That's give and then the number to wbai.org or call 212-209-209. 2950 during today's show. That's 212-209-2950 and we'll be happy to send you a copy but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopit at large and we thank you very much and, and now I return to uh, Professor Daniel Treisman, Professor of Political Science at UCLA also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and co-author of the book we're discussing, uh, with Sergei Guguryev, who is a professor of economics and director of graduate studies in economics at Sciences Po in Paris. Um, let's talk a bit about the word uh, dictator. Uh, de- didn't it originate as the title of men elected by the Roman Senate to rule Rome in times of emergency?
1: That's right. The original meeting was uh, a leader who would be given absolute power for a temporary period for, I think it was six months or a year uh, to deal with, as you said, an emergency, often a military emergency, they would be the commander. Uh, and uh, uh, when, uh, was the it was when it was considered to be the uh, only way to deal with this looming uh, disaster of some kind, uh, they would appoint a dictator.
0: Do we know the names of any of them and how effective they were?
1: Uh, I believe Julius Caesar was a dictator, uh, but uh, uh, I mean the danger was that they would stay after their uh, their appointed term.
0: Now uh, we've had absolute monarchs over the centuries. Since would we uh, compare them to to absolute dictators?
1: Well, uh, it depends. I think there's a great variety of monarchs, um, and we still have some monarchs today. So, for instance, in in the Persian Gulf, uh, most of the the uh, monarchs that we see ruling, uh, we would classify as fear dictators, but a few of them as spin dictators. Uh, they use relatively sophisticated methods. Um, but in the past, uh, monarchs were often constrained by... Uh, councils of their uh, barons um there are also uh constitutional monarchies which uh, have more formal constraints in the form of uh parliaments which have defined powers and uh, sometimes even independent governments so i think monarchy is a very broad term that refers to many different uh, types of cases uh, and uh, Monarchs have also operated in different ways. Uh, So one of the uh, first uh, writers to discuss what we call spin dictatorship, or at least something close to it, uh, is uh, actually very ancient. It was Aristotle who described two different ways in which uh, rulers could rule. And uh, one, uh, or at least absolute rulers could rule, one technique was... uh, basically what we call fear dictatorship, to uh, intimidate the population, uh, to uh, divide the population, uh, so to prevent any uh, independent organization emerging, uh, to keep everybody in fear. Uh, and Aristotle also described a second type of, of uh, absolute ruler, uh, who uh, in uh in Aristotle's words, appeared not harsh, but dignified. He uh, invested in public public goods and public services, uh, built temples and so on, and he pretended uh, not to rule uh, through uh, intimidation or, or uh, through force, uh, but rather to be uh, a benevolent, uh, popular leader. So I mean, these ideas go back a long way, and uh, I'm sure one can find, one could find examples uh, even in earlier centuries of monarchs who look more like fear dictators or more like spin dictators. Uh, but I think the balance has clearly shifted. Uh, the spin dictator, uh, whether a monarch or some other kind of leader, uh, in periods before uh, the last 50 years... Spin dictators with definitely a small minority, and uh, the the use of fear was viewed as really uh, uh, almost uh, inevitable in in, abs- in any kind of absolute rule. Oh,
0: but people have seen similarities. Some have labeled Putin a czar and Erdogan a sultan. But you
1: say, that, yeah. You say I mean, that- I would say that's exactly a sign of how we didn't have the concepts. Uh, we didn't really understand this type of regime, so we reach for uh, terms from the past which don't actually fit very well.
0: You say that before the twentieth century, no country was truly democratic. Why? Because women didn't have the right to vote, among other things.
1: Yes, indeed. Because of slavery other
0: in countries like the United States.
1: Of course, of course. Uh, I would uh, date U.S. full democracy to about nineteen sixty-five. Nineteen sixty-five. Yes, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. So it's it's uh, I I think the field of political science, the people who study democracy are are, uh, looking at this uh, much more critically than perhaps we did in the past. And uh, asking whether some of these countries that call themselves uh, full democracies, liberal democracies in the past uh, really meet the criteria for that.
0: Do you know any uh, that have been truly democratic uh, over the past 100 years?:
1: Well, it, around 1900, there were a handful of countries that uh, that I, I think uh, didn't have female voting yet, but were uh, democratic in most other ways, so Belgium, Switzerland, uh, even France at that point. Um, and then with World War I, many countries uh, introduced uh, voting for women uh, in, in that period, and right after World War I. Uh, so then we start to see a, a larger number of, of uh, genuine democracies. Tended to be in Northern Europe. That's right. Mostly in Europe. And, and uh, Australia and New Zealand, they were also very early.
0: Haven't dictatorships taken a number of different forms like corporatism? What's that?
1: Well, corporatism uh, was a a type of dictatorship that uh, emerged in the middle of the 20th century like fascism and uh, and, uh, communism. Um, And it's usually associated with with, uh, Francisco Franco in Spain and uh, Salazar in Portugal. It was a kind of alternative to representative democracy in that the leader would uh, create some kind of institution in which uh, parts of segments of society uh, or uh, particular parts of the economy would be represented. So people would be appointed to represent. Uh, it could be different uh, different social groups. Uh, it could be Uh, farmers, it could be uh, industry, uh, but rather than having elections in which we choose uh, whoever we want to represent us in the parliament, uh, there would be these appointed representatives uh, who were chosen because they fit some category that the leader had uh, decided should be included.
0: And you characterize some as mobilizational and others as demobilizational.
1: Right. So these 20th century uh, dictators, uh, some of them uh, had very strong ideology, and they sought to uh, to basically incorporate the public into observing this ideology. So somebody like Mao uh, would require that people uh, not just passively uh, observe the, uh, the requirements of of uh, of chinese communism but they had to demonstrate their uh their adherence uh so in many communist regimes there was pretty much obligatory participation in parades uh various kinds of rituals uh under mao there was even what was called the loyalty dance so before getting on a train in one period uh people were expected to perform this I mean, literally a dance, uh, a choreographed dance that uh, symbolized one's loyalty to, to Mao and to the regime. Um, so that's the mobilizational type of dictatorship. But then there were cases where really the dictator wanted people to just stay home and stay out of politics and viewed that as the real key to social stability. Um, so Franco then would really didn't uh, try to mobilize people behind some ideology. and uh, The goal was rather to try and create an old-fashioned uh, structured society in which people knew their place and didn't get out of line um, and uh, certainly didn't participate in, in demonstrations or parades. So we see these different types of... of uh, of dictatorship in the 20th century and, and sometimes they evolved from one into the other so if we look at the soviet communist party under lenin and stalin of course it was uh it was very mobilizational stalin had to uh motivate uh well force and motivate people to build industry uh to create the infrastructure of the soviet uh, of the soviet state and the soviet economy uh, but later on under brezhnev uh, all of this gradually crystallized into rituals, uh, which people didn't think very much about. Uh, and the society really became, well, the regime became much more demobilizational in the sense that, uh, yes, people wanted, uh, the regime wanted people to come out on, on uh, May Day and, and uh, the anniversary of the revolution in the parade, but they didn't want people to take that too seriously. Uh, They wanted people basically to just go on about their lives. Uh, So there was much less energy put into uh, stirring up the population into active support of the regime and a lot more effort put to uh, subtle intimidation, uh, letting people know that uh, they shouldn't step out of line, so demobilizing them.
0: How does that apply to something like the situation in Brazil with Bolsonaro? has uh, pretty much put the uh, the white ruling group uh, in opposition to the indigenous people?
1: Uh, well, that's a that's a difficult case. I mean, I, I would say Bolsonaro is is uh, probably a spin dictator. He's sort of on the border. He hasn't been there, perhaps, long enough to classify him very clearly, um, but he's sort of on the border with democracy. Um, and uh, he seems to be. I mean, so democratic politicians uh, can also uh, mobilize society. You can see see their uh, and populist politicians in democracies very often uh, try to mobilize society, try to rile them up and get them out to, uh, to uh, parades and uh, and rallies and so on. Uh, we saw that with Trump. So I th- think Bolsonaro is is trying that sort of strategy uh, to rally his supporters and a technique that occurs under spin dictators, well, really under all kinds of dictatorship and also under uh, various democracies, especially when populists are in power, uh, is to uh, deliberately create divisions or emphasize divisions in society, uh, to identify a majority uh, which is to be praised and uh, valued, and a minority which is to be defined as the enemy, and this becomes a way of unifying the majority uh, through hostility towards some uh, some some uh, prescribed minority uh, that uh, is viewed as treacherous or uh, well disloyal or or dangerous in some way.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Daniel Treisman, who is co-author with Sergey Guriev of Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century, published by Princeton University Press. Um, There have been a a number of elections yesterday. Um, Has the dust settled, or do we know whether uh, Sri Lanka or Pakistan— uh, should be included in the, the uh, as some of the countries that you are describing here? Serbia, another case?
1: Right. I haven't seen uh, reports on Sri Lanka. Uh, Pakistan seems to be in the midst of a constitutional crisis because uh, the Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, has uh, dissolved the uh, parliament at a time when it was uh, about to vote no confidence in him. Uh, so we'll have to see what well, comes out Pakistan of
0: that. Pakistan is a, one of the countries that have been ruled by their military for a long time.
1: That's that's a, that's a constant uh, worry that uh, the military, if it perceives disorder, could be tempted to intervene again. So, yeah, Serbia is an int- interesting case because their uh, prime minister, Alexander Vucic, uh, has been approaching what, what we see classified as spin dictatorship. Uh, so uh, he uh has used some of the same techniques to control the media uh using public advertising to buy loyalty um publicly attacking his critics uh and uh so uh i, I believe he he got reelected but i haven't seen the re- the results uh he if he does get reelected then it seems likely to us that he will consolidate into something like a spin dictator uh, in his next term.
0: Uh, In the few last minutes we have uh, on the show, I want to return to Russia, a country that you have written about in the past as well. Have you been able to retain contacts with people in Russia? Can uh, people who you trust still contact you without worrying about uh, getting into trouble?
1: Well, I mean, this is very sad, but uh, most of the people I know well are no longer in Russia. There's been a massive exodus uh, of, of really uh, some of the best people, I would say, in Russia, the, the people with consciences, uh, the people who have in the past stood out against uh, repressive government Um, So most of my friends are scattered in this diaspora that we now see in countries around Russia's borders, Georgia, Armenia, uh, or further away in in parts of Western Europe. Uh, So, of course, they can speak freely, but uh, it's just everybody is trying to absorb the shock of how far backwards Russia has gone in the last month or so. But but Russian foreign minister,
0: Sergei Lavrov, said Wednesday that the world is entering a historic stage in international relations, which opens an opportunity for Russia and China to lead a new world order. At the opening of a a meeting with Wang Yi, China's foreign minister in Beijing, uh, they said, we we together with you and with our sympathizers will move toward a multipolar, just democratic world order. They're calling this a democratic world order?
1: Yeah. Well, they would like that, wouldn't they, to lead a new world order? Uh, Easier said than done. Um, I don't see that alliance as really creating some kind of uh, new model that other countries will want to follow. Um, Yes, uh, China is interesting in that it calls itself democratic. Uh, The... uh, People's Democratic Republic of Korea, North Korea, also put democratic in in its uh, in in its official name. Um, But what they mean by democracy is certainly not uh, liberal parliamentary democracy. It's it's more, uh, as I understand it, uh, this idea that the leader has some kind of mystical identification with the people, with the masses Um, which is never actually tested through uh, elections and and an honest system of representative government. And
0: we Um, have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. But my great thanks to Daniel Treisman, professor of political science at UCLA and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, co-author with Sergei Gurev, of who's a professor of economics and director of graduate studies in economics at sciences, Poe in Paris, of the book we've been discussing, Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the Twenty First Century. It's from Princeton University Press. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you can get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is londerdlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show company weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by, calling, or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's given them the number to WBAI.org. Please do it right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Spin uh, Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century, by Professor Daniel Treisman and Sergei Guriev. Um, so... Please call now, uh, make that contribution, 212-209-2950, go online to give2wbai.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and you can do that for $10 or a month or more, and you will receive a WBAI tote bag as a a thank you gift. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants or anything else. So one more time, please call. To keep the only this historic station the only one on the New York Radio dollar that's 100% listeners sponsored alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support, call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope you can join us tomorrow when my guest will be one of our favorite regulars, Bob Henley, with a discussion of the latest political developments in our area and the country as a whole. We'll see you then.